because there's a lot to be said here. I want to open up with exposition this morning. We'll look at some doctrine. We'll look at some brief application. And then tonight we'll dig even deeper into the doctrine. And then we'll apply it again. But we're going to look at verses 10 and 11 of Matthew chapter 24. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would walk before us as our shepherd and lead us into these, these green pastures and feed our souls. Lord, I pray for those here in this room who are standing on the edge of the precipice of apostasy. Oh Lord, snatch them back. Lord, make us into a church that is ready to snatch one another from the flame. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Our Lord is warning His disciples of what they can expect as they await His coming in power and judgment on the nation of Israel. They had asked Him, what will be the sign of your coming? The parousia, literally, what will be the sign of your presence and of the end of the age? And so He's speaking to them and telling them what they can expect. I almost wanted to entitle these several verses, what to expect when you're expecting. But I thought that might, be, that might draw our minds too far. I've outlined this section several times, but I just want to lay it before your head again. In verse 4, he opens up with the first warning, See that no one leads you astray. What, what he's about to teach carries within it a lot of details that would be very easy for someone to come and pick one of them and twist it just a little and lead the disciples astray. And so he warns them from the very, very beginning, Don't be led astray. And then he goes straight into the truth. Here's what you can expect as you await my coming in judgment. First, you can expect false Christs. Secondly, you can expect genuine trials. We're breaking up these genuine trials into two more categories. Those outside the church. Trials that will affect all people in some way and some people in very specific ways like political turmoil and natural disasters. And then the second category of genuine trials would be trials inside the church. Trials that come upon those and affect those specifically within the gathered assembly, the gathered church, the visible church we might call it. Those who associate themselves with the Lord Jesus. And we've seen over and over that these things were to come upon that generation, but they were not new to that generation and they were not exclusive to that generation, that all generations have dealt with these things and will continue to deal with these things until Christ returns. 
that is, when He returns bodily at the end of the age. So we've opened up these trials inside the church already by last week looking at persecution from without. The church, these disciples specifically, and then the church in general should expect that from the outside there will come those who persecute. Secondly, what we're looking at today, what we should expect, what they were to expect, is apostasy from within. That is, from within the church. Apostasy from within what we tend to call the visible church. Those who profess to be, pretend to be, parade themselves as disciples, followers of the Lord Jesus. We call them the visible church because we can see them with our eyes. All true believers will be a part of the visible church. But not all who are a part of the, the visible church are true believers. And so when we talk about the visible church, we're not saying that there might be some Christians that we don't know about. What we're saying is there might be some unbelievers that have fooled us into believing they are true believers by joining themselves to the covenant community, the church. Now again, it does seem that from verse 9, our Lord is focusing on the visible church. He has been speaking directly to the disciples, specifically Peter, James, John, and Andrew, on behalf of all the disciples... He's speaking to these four representing the twelve and the twelve representing and receiving instruction for all of those who would be added to their number daily following Pentecost. They would have taught these things following the Lord's ascension. And you'll remember the language from verse 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated. He's talking specifically to these disciples Again, inside the visible church. And in verses 10 to 14, he continues to address these men and the, tri the trials that they're going to expect as they await judgment upon Jerusalem. And so we've come to these words in verses 10 and 11. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. He begins by first warning them, many will fall away. And the word there for fall away means to stumble, to trip up in the faith, to lose your footing. It's the same word that was used early on in chapter 18 when he kept talking about causes to sin. If anyone causes one of these little ones to sin, it's one word. It means to stumble. It means to falter in the faith. You're on this faith journey and you trip over a rock and you stumble and you fall. But the word by itself doesn't specify whether or not the falling is ultimate. Whether it's a final falling. It doesn't assume you fall and then you hop right back up. It doesn't assume that you fall and you never get back up. It just means that you stumble. You trip up in the faith. Now let me open up that idea and show you the different uses of this idea. Or this word. John 16 and verse 1. Jesus, speaking to His disciples, says, I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. It's the same word. I've said it so that you won't fall away. 
Okay, and then in Mark chapter 14 and verse 27, we read these words from Jesus. You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus says to them, you will all fall away. And he spoke so that they would not fall away. So we ask, which is it? Did the disciples fall away or did the upper room discourse accomplish the end to which he spoke? Namely, that they would not fall away. The answer is yes. It's both. They certainly stumbled in their faith. They did fall. They, they fled from him when he was arrested. Peter even denied that he knew him. But they did not ultimately fall away for good. That's what he spoke against. I have said these things so that you would not ultimately fall away, but you will fall away. So there is this short-term falling away, this stumbling, from which there might be a return. He spoke that they would not ultimately fall away, but there is also that long-term falling away from which no one returns. That's what we call apostasy. You fall away, you stumble in the faith, and you never return. He spoke so that that wouldn't happen. But he didn't say, I'm saying this thing so that you're, you'll never trip up in your faith. He says here in this Olivet Discourse, many will fall away. Now I want you to just listen to the tenor of, these, of this section, especially these two verses, and see if you can decipher which idea he has in mind. A short-term falling or long-term falling. Many will fall away, now we'll add to that, and betray one another. Now to betray means to hand over to the officials, just like Judas handed over Christ to the officials. Notice he says, many will fall away and betray one another. He does not say they will betray you. You will betray one another. In the New Testament, we run to the one another passages to see what we should do within the visible church. The implication is that this is going to happen within the visible community. So many will fall away, add to that, and betray one another, add to that, and hate one another. Now, in verse 9, he's already said, you will be hated by all nations. From the outside, you'll be hated. But now he's saying, you're going to hate one another within the community again. Now, now, when you add these things together, they'll fall away. You'll betray one another. You'll hate one another. Are you beginning to get the idea of which falling away our Lord is talking about here? I hope you can see he's talking about this falling away that, that culminates in rebellion against the covenant community from which people do not return. He goes on in verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now he's already warned them about this. False Christs, false prophets, false teaching. He's warned about the tendency to be led astray. But here again it seems what he's saying is even from within the visible church there will seep in this, these false prophets and many within the church are going to be led astray. This is the exact same thing that the Apostle Paul warned the Ephesian elders of as he left them. In Ephesians chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 
He knew this was going to happen. Notice what he says. Where, where, where are they going to come from? They're going to come from among you. They're going to rise up from among your own selves. They're going to rise up. They're going to speak twisted things within the church. And why are they doing this? Because they want to draw disciples away after themselves. This is already happening in the church of Ephesus prior to the fall of Jerusalem in Paul's day. And so our Lord is here warning His disciples that in the coming years, even amongst those who carry the name of Christ and associate themselves with the covenant community, there are going to be those who stumble in the faith and fall away. And some of those are going to go so far as to fall in their faith and then make the next step to actually teach contrary to what they had once confessed, to draw away disciples after them. We put those two passages together. That's what seems to be saying. They're going to fall. They're going to rise back up and lead people astray. And notice how he says it. Many will fall away. There will be many false prophets. They will lead many astray. Again, it's not a rarity. This is not, he's not saying, well, occasionally there might be some that fall and there might be some that are led astray. He's saying, no, many are going to fall. Many false prophets are going to arise. They're going to lead many astray. This is going to be a predominant theme as you move forward. Again, some stumble in their faith and they return like Peter. That's not what's in view here. Others turn away and they never return like Judas. This turning away, this stumbling, when it is not met with repentance and faith is called apostasy. Now, we know that all true Christians will stumble and they will falter in their faith from time to time. Sometimes we have stronger faith. Sometimes we have a weaker faith. Christians can actively engage in grievous sins from which they soon repent and return to the Lord, as we see in the life of David. We can read this from our own confession, chapter 15. It says, "...whereas there is none that doth good and sinneth not..." And the best of men may through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them and the prevalency of temptation fall into great sins and provocations. God hath in the covenant of grace mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling be renewed through repentance and unto salvation. So, so even our confession says that, even, that believers, true believers can sin and fall into grievous sin, but that in a believer will be met with repentance and faith. Not confession, not, well, I, I, I should have done that. Not just admitting you're wrong. It will be met with repentance, which means I hate that, I'm repulsed of that, I will have nothing else to do with that sin. That'll happen in the lives of believers. And we've seen that. We see that in the life of David. Perhaps you've seen it in your own life. But we also know those who would fit into this category called apostate. We, every one of us, know somebody who once held to a profession of faith, maybe even for many years, and yet now we can look at their lives or we can even hear their confession and we know they are not Christians. We all know them. Paul told Timothy... In 1 Timothy 4.1, that the Spirit expressly says that in latter or later times, some will depart from the faith. So what happened to these people? Did they lose their salvation? 
Is our Lord saying in this text, in the coming days many are going to lose their salvation? Is He saying that they're going to fall from grace? Is He saying in the coming days God is going to lose His grip on these people? Is He saying that these people are going to simply decide that they no longer want to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and joined in vital union to Christ? Is that what He's saying? Well, to make sense of this, we have to understand the biblical doctrine of apostasy. So that's what I want to open up, is the doctrine of apostasy. We'll look at it this morning. We'll apply it. We'll look at it even more in depth this evening. So first, let's define apostasy specifically from this text and see how this is laid out here. He says, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now, just think about the phrases. Many will fall away. We would ask, away from what? Many will betray one another. Well, they had to know one another at least a little bit to, in order to betray them, to hand them over. Many will hate one another. You've got to have some knowledge of somebody at least a little before you can hate them, hopefully. They will lead many astray. Remember that word astray. The idea is that someone would have to be on some sort of path in order to be led astray from it. You can't be led astray from nothing. You can't fall away from nothing. You can't betray nobody. You can't hate nobody. Those who enter into the state of apostasy then, they are near something. They're near someone... They're near some kind of person. They're near this group of people that they will eventually betray them. They're going to turn against them. They're walking down some kind of path. They have some destination in mind. Or perhaps they're in some supposed place of safety like the sheep on the pasture with his shepherd. They're in some supposed place of safety. And then here's apostasy. Apostasy is the state these people find themselves in after they willfully rebel against or turn from the church they once owned, the life they once lived, and the Savior they once confessed. Apostasy is the state that this kind of person finds himself or herself in after they willfully rebel against the church they once owned, the life they once lived, and the Savior they once confessed. In other words, apostasy, or to be apostate, assumes some owning of the church, being in some way associated with the true, visible church of Christ where you heard the gospel. You can't apostatize from nothing. Apostasy assumes that these people are living the life of a Christian, that they have had their lives in some way brought into conformity to what we would call a biblical ethic or even a Christian ethic. Apostasy assumes that they confess Jesus Christ as Savior. They've made some sort of profession of faith, some sort of statement regarding their salvation. Those who've never experienced these things can't fall away because they were never near. The apostate is one who was near and then falls away. That's apostasy. Now let me, in a second heading, just dig a little deeper there. The subjects of apostasy are apparent believers. 
The only ones who can enter into a state of apostasy are those who have at least for some period of time been in close community with the true church, made some sort of profession of faith, and had some advances in religion or piety. In other words, and hear this, the only people who can apostatize are those who claim to be Christians, look like Christians, and are in community with Christians. Does that describe anyone in this room? It does, hopefully. Then you are a prime candidate for apostasy. If you're in this room, you're a prime candidate for apostasy. They are apparent believers who walk with the Lord for some time. If they are apparent, that means they give the appearance, at least some appearance, that they've been converted. Now to be sure, these folks are not, nor were they ever true Christians. But they don't know that. And they didn't know that. Apostates are not spies who come in and they say, oh, I know I'm not a Christian, but I'm going to sneak into the church and I'm going to find out what they do. They're not spies. They believe they're Christians. You see, many who only God knows right now will eventually turn from the faith. Right now, you would never guess that they're unsaved. You wouldn't look at them and say, that's a lost person. They say the right words. They do the right things. They're with the right people. They go to the right events. They read all of the right books. By all accounts, they appear to be a convert for at least some length of time. Does this describe anyone in this room? It does. Then that makes you a prime candidate for apostasy. But these subjects of apostasy who are apparent believers who walk for some time in this profession, this lifestyle, after a time they turn away. Apostates really, truly, with their whole heart, believe they are Christians only to walk away. Now this could be for a really short time. It could be hours, it could be days, it could be weeks. Or it could be for a really long time. It could be years, it could be decades where they really think they're believers and they walk away. A person could give the appearance of walking with Christ for 30 years and they might shame you with their zeal and with their knowledge, with their ability to walk in some form of morality and then turn away. A child might make a profession of faith at 10 years of old, 10 years of age, only to walk away at 16. An 18-year-old may appear radically converted and have her life transformed almost overnight, only to go back to her sins in six weeks after summer break. Those who find themselves in the state of apostasy are those who appear to be converted, walk for some time in that profession, and then turn away. And so the seal of apostasy is that ultimately, with their mouths or with their lives, they deny the very Savior they once confessed. With their mouths or with their lives. It doesn't have to be both. With their mouths, they might come right out and, and denounce the faith. And they might say... That's not for me anymore. 
Or they may just deny some major tenet of the faith. Like the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, penal substitutionary atonement, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. They might just deny one of those. They're not, they wouldn't say, I'm not a Christian anymore. They just deny a major tenet of the faith. Or perhaps it's not verbal. They say, I'm a Christian. Maybe they say they confess all of these major tenets of the faith. But this is more common in our culture is with their lives, they just return to sin. They go back to worldliness. Or they abandon the observable practices of a biblical Christian. They abandon the observable practices of a biblical Christian. Now we might ask, what is the most notable, the most observable practice of a biblical Christian that when it is abandoned gives the greatest evidence of apostasy? I would suggest that gathering with the saints for corporate worship on the Lord's Day is the most observable practice of a biblical Christian that when abandoned gives the greatest evidence that someone is apostate. Now let me explain that. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and or stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now remember the context of Hebrews. Persecution has come. It's causing believers to stumble in their faith and turn away. The force of the letter of Hebrews is Christ is greater than everything you might go back to. Don't abandon the faith. Stand firm in the faith. And in this verse he's saying, putting all that together, hold fast the confession, stir up one another, don't stop meeting. You see here, it's very easy for a lost person who wants to fool everybody around them into believing they're a Christian to satisfy their own guilty conscience, to get everybody off of their back, here's what they do. Go to church. One day, every seven days, you go to church and everybody says, well, they're fine. Everyone's doubts are relieved. We, well, we were worried, but well, he's back. She's back. Every seven days, you just go to church. And everybody says, well, they were at church. It's because going to church, gathering with the saints is part and parcel with cultural Christianity. Going to church in our area is equated with Christianity. As a matter of fact, you'll meet some people who want to avoid Christianity. Why? Because they don't want to go to church. It's the one thing that is just sort of, it's, it's commonly associated with Christianity. If you're a Christian, you go to church. It's understood by everybody. And so when a person begins to slack in this area, they're not even doing what lost people do to convince people they're saved. They're not even trying to pretend to be a Christian if they won't come to church. 
And if they won't even do that, what they're saying is, I have no concern for my soul. I have no concern for the souls, the members of that body. I have no honor for Christ's bride as she gathers. I don't even have, an, have enough respect for God to give Him the day that He set aside as His own. Mark it down. When you stop coming to church, you will be gone soon enough. Now you can say all day long, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. We got the universal church, you know, the body of Christ, universal church. I just do it at home. You can say it all day long. But when you abandon the corporate gathering of the saints on the Lord's day, eventually you will apostatize. The apostate denies Christ in either word or deed, but it doesn't have to be both. And those who die in this state will spend eternity suffering the anguish of the everlasting flames of hell. They will weep in pain and yet they will gnash their teeth in anger and hatred, spewing forth curses against the Christ that they once confessed. And there will not be a lesser torment for the apostate. It's going to be greater. More light means greater condemnation. As one man said, it would be better to fall into hell from the gutter than from the pew because you're falling a lot further. This is called apostasy. Now, do we see this displayed? Well, I think we do throughout Scripture, just like these other warnings. We see it throughout Scripture. It's not limited to the time between Christ's ascension and, his, and the destruction of Jerusalem. The, the great example in Scripture is the nation of Israel in the Old Testament had, had everything laid at their laps right in the presence, literally in the presence of God. And they turned. Taken into captivity, only a remnant returns. Within the, the nation itself, there were various kings that you can read about. that They start off well, but then they turn. We come to the New Testament. We see large groups as well as individuals turning from the Lord. The great example is Judas Iscariot walked with the Lord for three years. Maybe even shared a rock as a pillow from time to time. Ate with him, drank with him, lived with him, walked with him, learned from him. And he turned him over to the authorities. In John chapter 6, another great example, Jesus, the, 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 the chapter begins by Jesus feeding the 5,000. 5,000 men, probably 15,000, 20,000 people altogether. In verse 66, after this, that is after some of his teaching, many of his disciples, learners, followers, turned back and no longer walked with him. They were following and they left. In John chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Same group, later on in the chapter, they picked up stones to throw at him. But he hit, Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They started believing in him. They ended wanting to kill him. In Acts chapter 8, we read of Simon the magician. We read even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed but then just a few verses later, Peter has to say to him, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you might, of, 
nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon wasn't converted. He couldn't even pray for himself. He liked the signs. He liked the wonders. He liked to be associated when that stuff was happening. Another very crucial text in the New Testament, 1, Corinthians, or 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20, speaking of Hymenaeus and Alexander, some have made shipwreck of their faith. They had a faith. They made shipwreck of it. 2 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. All of these examples of people who really, truly, with their hearts, believed sincerely that they were Christians and they turned away. They were following and they got to a point where they said, I will not follow anymore. Now how many of you know someone who fits that description? We all know these people. We've seen them. We've walked with them. We've talked with them. That's not surprising. The question is, how many of you know for certain you will not end your life in apostasy? How many of you know for certain with infallible knowledge that you'll still be here next year this time? How, how many of you know for certain that after 20 years you might say, I can't do it anymore. I can't, I can't fake it anymore. I've, I've just got to come clean. It's not me. After 40 years, you... How do you know that you're not going to just retire and spend the rest of your life riding around in an RV looking at the countryside? How many of you know with infallible knowledge that in a hundred years you will not be suffering in agony as the everlasting flames lick your flesh? See, we can all look at people and say, well, yeah, I know somebody who did that. But see, before they did that, before they turned, they didn't know they were going to turn. How do you know that it won't be you? You see, if you had infallible knowledge about the future, there would be no need for these warnings in the New Testament. There'd be no reason to say, watch out and be careful. Because we would say, well, I don't need to listen to that. I, I know for a fact. You see, these warnings remind you that while, do, while God does know the end from the beginning, and God does know the genuineness of your faith, God is certain of the surety of His eternal election. You do not know infallibly what God knows. The, apostasy never, or the apostate never looks back and says, Yeah, okay, I wasn't a Christian. It was a joke the whole time. They never say that. Do you know how many apostates have felt just as certain of their salvation or maybe more certain than you do right now? How many apostates still feel just as certain about their salvation as you do? I guarantee you, Rob Bell and Brian McLaren and Andy Stanley are just as certain about their salvation as you are. They are sure when they die they're going to heaven. They're apostate. They don't know it. This is the fear of apostasy. How many people have walked away from the Lord and yet they tell themselves every day, God understands, God will forgive, I'll get my life together someday, and yet from God's perspective they are as far away from Him as the day they were born. They are dead in trespasses and sins, but they think because of some time spent at church with church people learning church things that God will have mercy. 
See, the great danger of apostasy is that it gathers those who never thought they would turn away. If you thought you would turn away or knew that you were going to turn away, you wouldn't be apostate. Now, I'm going to say a lot more about this this evening. But surely at this point, the very concept of apostasy sends shockwaves through your soul. Surely. Do you ever just sit? Maybe I'm the only one. But just sit and just think, what might happen next year, five years, ten years down the road in my mind or in my heart, at which point I just turn away? What, what could happen? A mental switch? A, a chemical imbalance? Just think. Well-meaning, Bible-believing, reformed, five-point Calvinists have fallen away from the faith never to return. None of that gives any hope. Who's to say that it's not going to be you? Now perhaps you can already feel in your heart a carelessness about the things of the Lord, a, a lack of desire, a lack of motivation. You can already sense boredom with the things of God. You're already beginning to have doubts about the validity of the truths of the gospel. When you're alone by yourself and you begin to think of a, a child born of a virgin, conceived from the Holy Spirit of God, lived perfectly, was crucified on a Roman cross, but then came back from the dead and now ascended into the heavens where he lives bodily, reigning as king, but he's going to come back someday bodily and gather his people unto himself. You begin to think about those things and you begin to wonder about the, how, just how fantastical that is. I'm not saying it's not fantastical. I'm just saying you begin to wonder. I just don't know how long I can hang on to that. Maybe you're on the verge of apostasy. You just haven't taken the leap yet. You're there. You're just waiting on the gall to be able to look church people in the face and say, look, I don't believe it. Here's the application. Number one, you need to hear this warning from Christ. Or maybe I should say hear this as a warning. Many will fall away. Do you believe what the Lord says? I do. Many will fall away. Now let me ask, when you hear that, does that give you some sort of comfort? Like, well, you know, it was written a long time ago. God determined it. There's nothing I can do about it now. So, and it just produces a little bit of apathetic comfort. I was going to go that way. It does me good to know that, well, God predestined it. You know, we hang on to you know, a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of, a little bit of theology just to comfort ourselves in that thought. Maybe when you hear this warning, many will fall away, you well up with pride and you say, that could never happen to me. Never. That sounds familiar. Lord, even if these all fall away, I will never fall away. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before the fall. Does this warning give you comfort? Does it give you pride? Or does this warning, many will fall away, does it light a fire in your soul to confirm your calling and election? To make it sure. To say, Lord, you said many will fall away. I'm going to do whatever I can not to fall away. And I need you to hold me, Lord. Don't let go of me. 
See, the warning is given for a reason. It's given to these men for a reason. Paul said some will depart from the faith, telling Timothy that in the church for a reason. It's not so that Christians can say, oh, well, that's for people. Well, we know we can't lose our salvation, so we just explain it away as if the warning has no validity. The warning against apostasy is not given to pagans. It's not given to secularists. It's giving to those people who think they're Christians. It's to be heard by Christians, heeded by Christians, or those who profess to be Christians. And it's not just so that you're going to be aware that others will fall away, but it doesn't, it's not, not, it doesn't apply to you. It's to you. Many will fall away. Some will depart from the faith. Hear the warning from the Lord to you. Especially if you're already sensing apathy or boredom or unbelief or lack of motivation. Don't write that off as, as just the, the ebbing and flowing of your personality. Well, sometimes I'm happy and sometimes I'm sad. And so sometimes I'm going to have more assurance and sometimes I'm going to have less assurance. And sometimes I'm going to be more motivated and sometimes I'm going to be less motivated. That might be true, but don't ever write it off when you begin to feel these things welling up in your soul. If you were in a room locked tight with ten mosquitoes, one had HIV, one had malaria, and one had West Nile virus, but seven were fine, how many would you let land on you? Zero. You, don't, you wouldn't say, oh, it's just a mosquito. How much more should you defend your soul? Don't treat these things like apathy and boredom and unbelief, lack of motivation. Don't treat it as harmless. It's deadly. Because if it tarries, you will turn away. So you've been warned. Hear the warning. The warning is to people who think they're Christians. Secondly, recognize the reality of apostasy. Recognize the reality. What does apostasy mean, ultimately? What does it mean? Is it just somebody decided they're going to believe differently? Andy Stanley, he just decided, well, we're still Christians. I just don't believe the Bible and you do. But we can get along. Is that, is that what apostasy is? No. The, the reality of apostasy is that those who are apostates spend eternity in hell. They don't come back. Apostasy means turning and you're not coming back. The author to the Hebrews would say there, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. When you turn away Christ who is the only sacrifice, there's not another one. That's it. We're not talking about just a shift in theological opinions. We're talking about your eternal destiny. Those who turn end up in hell. Now surely contemplating, just sitting alone and thinking about that day when you take your first step off into the lake of fire, surely that would raise in you some sense of severity with the issue of apostasy. Surely that would cause you to maybe take a couple steps back and begin to truly examine what it is you believe and, and whether or not you really believe it. Many will fall away, and the reality is those who fall away will go to hell. So then, thirdly, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Look inwardly just for a moment. And I'll tell you what you see. You know you're a sinner. You know the weakness of your faith. You know how easily you slide into complacency. 
You know your foot slides in due time. You know it. If you let up, you're sliding down. You know that. And the reason I know that you know that is because I know that about myself. The only way that any of you can be confident in any type of eternal salvation is to look outside yourself. That's the only way. So as you examine your heart, where is your salvation? Where's your trust? Your faith cannot save you because it's not strong enough. Your knowledge can't save you because it's not vast enough. Assurance of salvation cannot save you because it's going to come and it's going to go. From time to time, it'll be stronger. And other times, it's going to be weaker. And other times, you're going to think, how on earth can a Christian think the what I'm thinking, live the way I'm living, do what I'm doing? How can it be? Your assurance can't save you. Your morality can't save you. You're a sinner from birth just like me. Only Christ can save. As one man said, an anchor is only good if you throw it out of the boat. It's not any good in the boat. You've got to throw it out. So you look inside yourself and you realize there's nothing in here, there's nothing in this that's going to save. So you have to ponder that question. Is your trust in Christ alone? We'll see tonight that there are a lot of various um, things that will lead to signs of apostasy. None of them are, you trusted too much in Christ. You, lean, you just lean too much on the Lord Jesus. And that's what caused you to turn away. It's not it. Is your trust in Christ alone? Are you resting in His life, His death, His resurrection as the only sufficient grounds for your salvation? If you say yes today, good. Now just do that tomorrow and the next day, the day after that, and the day after that. Every day. Where's my trust? What am I hoping in? What's going to get me there? Look to Jesus. Never look away. Don't turn away. Don't look beyond Him to something else. Don't look short of Him at something lesser. Lean upon Christ. Never look away. Only in Christ, in His life, as a substitute for sinners, in His death as the substitute for sinners, and in the Father's eternal satisfaction in what His Son has done as a substitute for sinners, that's the only place there is salvation. You look anywhere else. You get your eyes off. That's the direction you're going to be walking. It might take three weeks. It might take three years. It might take 30 years. But eventually, you're going to get further and further and further away because you diverted your eyes just a little. You looked away just a little. But a little diversion over a long period of time ends up in a great chasm. Are you trusting in Christ? Are you looking to Jesus? When we come to the Lord's table, this is what we're doing. We are engaging in apostasy prevention also known as a means of grace. God will keep His people. Christ will keep His people. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to be more clear tonight. I don't believe that a Christian will ever lose their salvation. But God has means by which He does it. Like I've already said, when you set aside the means, you're walking toward apostasy. The Lord's table is a means of grace. It is an apostasy prevention ceremony. 
or we come together and we do what I've just said, we think about that body and we think about that blood. And we look at that body and we look at that blood. And we eat that bread and we drink that juice. And we say, this is my salvation. This body, this blood, this is my life. We look at his death and we're reminded that death was my death. When he was crucified, I was crucified with him. When we look at his body, see this body was broken for my sin. He wasn't a sinner. His body was broken for my sins. As guilty sinners, our only hope lies in what the table represents. Christ crucified for sinners. We look anywhere else, we'll fall away. So take a minute, think on these things, and then we will come to the Lord's table.